couple of things about just, I pray you guys would know the church, what we do here is we do our best to teach you the Bible. You know, you don't just go and hear some guy talk about whatever the current issues are. You know, we try to work our way through the scriptures. That way you know that what we're studying and the words that are being spoken, they don't carry, you know, my authority or my knowledge. It has to do with the authority of God. That This is his love letter to us. These are his basic instructions before leaving earth, the B-I-B-L-E. And so as we're reading it, know that it's, it's God's word and we study it. Uh, just line upon line, precept upon precept. Here in Mark chapter 9 and verse 30, it says, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and we're afraid to ask him. As we look at this first section right here, it's Jesus uh, letting them know in advance that he was going to be betrayed by Judas. He would be killed, crucified, suffer on that cross for our sins. But when he died, they would put him in a grave. He would rise three days later. In one sense, it's like the foundation of Christianity. You know, it's Jesus' work so that people would get saved, so that they no longer would, you know, have to be under the bondage of crystal meth or heroin or drugs or alcohol or pornography or sex or whatever that vice might be, you know, so that people could know while they live, they have life, and when they die, they'll go to heaven. Jesus did his part, right, by dying for us on that cross, and so he wanted them to, to know this. It was very important. And so we even read right here that he didn't want people to know where he was because he wanted some privacy. We break in public ministry because he wanted to teach his disciples this very, very important truth. As a matter of fact, in Luke's account, it says, let these words sink into your ears. And so, you know, they were supposed to internalize this. They were supposed to listen and learn. You know, I don't know about you, but when I read what he says there in verse 31, I mean, to me, it makes perfect sense. It's easy to understand. But they, with their preconceived ideas, they didn't get it. You know, son of man's going to be betrayed, killed, but he'll rise again the, the third day. That's not hard to understand. But they had a misconception regarding the mission of the Messiah. They thought he was supposed to come, set up his kingdom on earth, and he, would, he wouldn't die. You know, but they unfortunately didn't get it, and they didn't dare or care to ask what Jesus was saying. You know, I encourage you guys to ask questions. Have you ever heard that saying, the only dumb question is the question not asked? You know, there's a, a lesson, I think, even for us in this, because you know, we have to know that we were created to ask questions. That's why, you know, our children are so inquisitive. Isn't it neat how they ask why? 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 They keep asking why, right? Because they're wired that way. And, you know, let it never go away. It's not just for certain ages or stages of life, man. We should remain like sponges, just growing and soaking all the information in. 
You know, you might feel dumb. I know I've been in, I'm a Bible college teacher. I know what it is to have students. I've been involved in classes. And, uh, you know, sometimes you're afraid to ask questions because you think, you know, it's going to be dumb. Or you might even think the teacher thinks you're challenging them. But don't let it stop you from asking questions, especially in the context of Bible studies. I, I encourage you to be a Berean. The Bible talks about them in Acts 17, 10 through 11, which these disciples, when they heard Paul the Apostle teaching, they didn't just take his word, you know, hook, line, and sinker. No, they tested it. They searched the scriptures to make sure that what he said lined up with the Bible. And so uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. Unfortunately, these guys didn't. Uh, they kind of heard he was going to die, but they didn't really know why. They didn't know when. They didn't have a clue what rising in three days meant. It just went in one ear and out the other. And so for us, it's important to understand this crucifixion where Jesus died for you. You know, you're here today. Most of you are probably Christians, but maybe you don't realize that, that our sins separated us from God. And so God doesn't want us to die in our sins. God doesn't want us to, to go to hell. So he sent his son, Jesus, to die Rise again the third day. That's kind of like payment for our sins. And then there's the receipt, right? The proof. And all you have to do today is make a decision to follow Christ. Give him your heart. Let it be real. Not just plain church, not just a religion, but truly a relationship that you enter into. And as you do, you will find life. If that's you and you're here today and you don't have that yet, I pray that right now you would begin to settle in your heart that today's the day I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ. This is so important for us to know. You know, Jesus uh, wanted them to know in advance. He was hoping to prepare them so they wouldn't stumble, knowing it wasn't something that he just stumbled on, that they didn't take his life. He laid it down. It was set in motion, as a matter of fact, even before time began. But, you know, they didn't understand. Question, do you understand? Do you understand God loves you and he died for you? And, you know, they put him in a grave, but three days later he rose again. And today, if you place your faith in Jesus, that you'll be forgiven of all your sins. I pray you understand that. And looking at that, though, that's the work of the Lord. He lays down the foundation. But now, you know, how do all those people on the highways and byways get saved? From Colombia to Nepal to Cambodia to Mexico to, to, to Almani, how do they get saved? Well, now it's up to us in one sense. Now we have to go out there and we have to labor. We have to, to behave. We have to be a certain people. And now the Lord begins to train them about some Christian fundamentals in order for them to be used by God so people will find life. And the first thing that we have to understand is, is Christian greatness. Christian greatness. Because look what happens next. In verse 33, it says, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, 
Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I want God to use my life. I want to be a vessel. I want to be a man that God can use to help other people. Well, one of the things that you're going to have to understand is what true greatness is. It's contrary to what the world would say. I mean, these guys right here, they're just men with no Christian conviction at this point. They're carnal. They're competitive amongst themselves. And the truth is that a man left to himself is flooded with pride and selfish ambition. And that's exactly where they were. You know, the timing to me is interesting because it's right after God in the flesh had predicted his own death where he would go to the very bottom. Here they are exalting themselves to the very top. And they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. You know, and I'm pretty sure that when they were arguing, it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to be first. No, I'm going to be first. No, I'm going to be first. I don't think it was that simple. More than likely, it was probably more along the lines, this is why I'm going to be first, because I'm better than you are. I'm more spiritual than you are. I'm a better communicator than you are. I'm a better facilitator than you are. I'm strong. You're wrong. I'm better. That was the heart of where they were, and that will immediately disqualify you from the plan that God has for your life. What does the Bible say? If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. See, true Christian greatness is very important for us to understand. Pride and jealousy and envy, they they find a home in a man's heart and they ought not be there. You know, they thought they could hide their heart from the Lord, but they couldn't. So the Lord asked them about it. He says, you know, what, what were you guys arguing about? You know, and at first they're silent, but eventually they open up to the Lord. In Matthew 18, it tells us, they, they then eventually said, okay, Lord, who then is the greatest in the kingdom? And so in verse 35, notice in our Bible, it says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You know, the Lord sat down. That means he's going to teach them. And what does he teach? He teaches on Christian greatness. You know, and it's so contrary to the world, right? The world wants to be served. Uh, We as Christians rather should have a heart to serve. The world longs for power and position, and they lead by intimidation rather than illustration, you see? But God says, no, if you really want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you have to have a heart that is willing to be last if that's where God calls you. Serving not just others, but have a heart willing to serve all anywhere God would have you. I remember the first time we went down to Mexico, to Vizcaino. You know, here we are, you know, we got a group of people from the church. We traveled 10 hours down into Baja. You know, it's a rough ride. And, and, you know, I get there and I'm excited, you know, to find out what I'm going to be doing when I get there. Any missions trip is like that. You're like, what do I get to do when I get there? I'm not kidding you when I tell you this. My assignment was to empty all the trashes. The whole time I was there, three, four days we're there, you know, Pastor Manny, that's his job. Imagine that, emptying the trash. 
So what was that? That was a test for me. You know, I'm thinking, man, I spent money and I, I, I sacrificed all this and that. And, you know, I've been teaching in the Bible college and whatever, all these types of things. And, you know, all I'm going to do is empty the trash. Yeah, absolutely. God was checking my heart, right? And so it was a blessing, man, because, you know, as I'm emptying the trash, you know, you're kind of like the weight is lifted. You're free to fellowship with all these other people. And God, there's something about that. When I first got, became a Christian, I, I was a, a, a pastor slash janitor, and I used to empty uh, the trash and, and, uh, and clean the toilets and, you know, vacuum and all that kind of stuff, man. That was my job. And to be honest with you, it was such a blessing, and it kind of brought that back to me in my life. And so, you know, God will test us. Next year when I went, they allowed me to teach because I think in one sense that's kind of how it works. God will test you whether or not you're willing to be last. And if you're not, then that's as far as you'll go. See? And so for us, in looking at this, this is what Jesus said. He says, man, you have to be willing to serve others. I read a true story about a large group of European pastors who came to one of D.L. Moody's uh, Bible conferences. It was in the late 1800s. And following the European custom of the time, each guest put their shoes outside his room to be cleaned by the hall servants overnight. And so that was a European custom. You put your shoes out, they clean them for you, but it wasn't an American custom. And so walking the dormitory that night, D.L. Moody saw the shoes lined up in the hallway, but he didn't want to embarrass his brothers. And so what he did was he mentioned it to some of the students in the college, but they weren't really responding and so D.L. Moody, therefore, returned to the dormitory. He gathered up all the shoes, and he brought them alone to his room. And the world's most famous evangelist of the day began to clean and polish every single one of the shoes. No one would have known except a friend uh, happened to arrive. And the next day, D.L. Moody didn't tell anybody, but his friend did. And what ended up happening from that point on is all the other pastors then volunteered, hey, I'll do it tonight, and then, you know, I'll do it tonight, and I'll do it tonight. What did D.L. Moody do? He expressed a heart of servanthood, and by not intimidation but illustration, he allowed them to follow in his steps of servanthood. This same D.L. Moody was the one who said, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many he serves. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. And it's kind of cool how he uses the, the child as an illustration. Did you notice that there in verse 36? It says, look at it again. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms. Do you notice that? It's kind of like, and we don't know, some say maybe it was Peter's child. Because in Capernaum, they may have been in Peter's house but he took him in his arms. It may have been a hug. It may have been holding him. And, and the Lord teaches a lesson through the children. And in Matthew's account, Jesus said, you have to become like children. But in Mark, he says that we should be willing to serve the children. You know, back then, children were not only highly esteemed as they are now, they weren't really highly esteemed. As a matter of fact, you guys remember the story when the little children came to Jesus uh, the disciples uh, rebuked the parents and rebuked the kids. They said, you know, Jesus doesn't have time for you right now. He's got more important men or matters to tend to. And remember, they shooed the children away. 
But Jesus said, oh no, in Matthew 19, 13 and 14, he says, don't send them away. They're like precious pictures of God's children in his kingdom. And what does he do is he teaches us to be willing to serve the children. You know, do you have the faith of a child and are you willing to serve a child? You know, I, I know, uh, you know some guys I've even have approached me and they say, I want to preach from the pulpit. Uh, you ever you know, need someone to fill in for you a Sunday? Just let me know. I'm the man, right? And I, I would probably should tell them, well, why don't you start by teaching the children? Huh? If I'd be better, right? I want to lead worship from the stage right there in front of everyone. Okay, well, why don't you start by leading worship for the kids? Well, I don't like kids. Some people tell me that, right? <laughs> Come again. You know, you don't like kids? I think it's safe to say that something is seriously wrong with you. If you don't love children, you know, Jesus said in verse 37, if you receive them, you receive me. And if you receive me, he said, ultimately, you receive my father. It all started with how you treated the children. That's how important they are. You know, one day when we're in heaven, uh, the nursery workers, the servants in the children's ministry, the, the moms and dads who didn't neglect their kids and family, who paid attention to their children, one day when we're in heaven, they will be the ones who are richly rewarded. Okay, you guys know that? So don't, you know, say you didn't know in advance when we're there in heaven and Teacher Jesse and Teacher Rich, they get a mansion and all you end up with is is a pop-up tent or something, okay? Because <laughs> the Lord made it straight. He said, man, you serve the kids. You have to have a willing heart like that, right? Because here's the bottom line. If you're willing to serve the children who can't in one sense do anything for you, it usually manifests a heart willing to serve everyone and anyone. Understand, that is Christian greatness. Okay, and so the Lord deals with that. Secondly, he deals with Christian oneness. In verse 38, now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Jesus died for us. He rose again. He did his work so that people would be saved. Now we want to be used by him. We want to work so that people would be saved, so that families would be stronger. We want to be used by him. Well, these are some of the principles that are very important. Christian greatness is humility, and Christian oneness is that unity. And so they saw someone casting out demons, uh, some of the apostles, right? Casting out demons in Jesus' name. And that right there is interesting when you consider the fact that earlier they didn't have the power to cast out demons, but, you know, they saw these guys and they told them to stop because, you know, they didn't follow with them. And so I think that's kind of weird. Imagine that you tell someone to stop casting out demons. Doesn't that sound kind of weird to you? And so Jesus said, no, you stop. You stop. Don't forbid them. I mean, he said he's a real believer. He's not ashamed of me, even in the hostile environment. You know, their doctrine is right. Their deeds are right. They're... 
They're not going to turn on me suddenly. The Lord is trying to teach oneness here. He's saying, you guys need to learn that even though they might not attend the same church you do or be part of the same denomination that you are, if they're not against us, then they're for us. You know, some people in the church even, they're very critical of others that don't go to their church or belong to the denomination that they belong to or they don't do things exactly the way they do and they're so quick to divide. We need to be very careful in this. It's extremely un-Christ-like to be divisive. And so we need to keep the unity. If you remember, that was Jesus' prayer. He prayed that they would be one. Remember that? And so we need the unity. But I also need to mention to you, we also need to make sure we don't get sloppy in that as well. Here's the thing, you guys. Ultimately, we need to know our Bibles. We need to know the difference between the non-essentials and the essentials. We need to know when to divide and when to unite. You know, I mean, sometimes some people are like, well, it's okay. They, they say they're a Christian and, you know, they're on TV and they got a, you know, program. And so I'm sure they're fine. Not all of them are, you guys. You know, they might be nice people and they might even do miracles and they might claim to be Christians. But here's the thing. If they're preaching a different Jesus, it's okay to say that's wrong. That's not who we are. And if they're participating in or practicing something that Jesus would condemn, it's okay to part ways. You know, I have some of these ministries, so-called Christian ministries, that are ripping the people off. They're fleecing the flock, mismanaging God's money, abusing the gifts, departing from Christian essentials. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, in those cases, we can make a clear distinction and depart decisively. As a matter of fact, we're obligated to divide in those cases because that means they're against us. They're teaching lies and doctrines that actually damn souls and we're not to be part of that. And so, you guys, it requires discernment. It requires an understanding of God's word. But here's the thing. Just be careful in this. If they're not against us, they're for us. And Jesus said, if that's the case, you better not. You better not divide. Because you know, that's how the devil works. We want to get the gospel out. We shouldn't be fighting each other. You know, there's the, the story I've told you guys a, a few times. The little boy, he wanted to, you know, to do what his dad told him to do because his dad told him to break a bundle of sticks. And so he gets the bundle of sticks and he says, okay, dad, I'll break it for you. And what ends up happening is he, he tries and he, he leans it up against the rock and you know, he kicks it, it won't break. He gives it a karate chop and it doesn't break. And he's trying everything he can to break it. And so he goes to his dad. He said, Dad, I can't break the bundle of sticks. And so I tried everything. And his dad's all, you haven't tried everything. He says, bring the bundle of sticks to me. And so what does he do? He unties it. And then one by one, they're able to break it. See, and that's what the devil does. When we start fighting against each other and dividing each other, then he has more leverage. But when we're together, when we're united, then we're stronger and we're going to get the gospel out. So we need to know Christian greatness. We need to know Christian oneness. Thirdly, we need to know Christian holiness. Because look at verse 41. He says, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. 
But whoever confesses one of these, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so you have Christian greatness. When you look at this right here, you have uh, Christian oneness. And then you have Christian holiness. Now, this is interesting considering the context of the way that these guys were condemning the other believers who belonged to Christ. He said essentially this, you shouldn't have stopped them. You shouldn't have forbade them. On the contrary, you should have given them something to drink. Anyone who does such a kind deed for the disciples of Christ, even if it's just a cup of water, they have stored up for themselves treasures and rewards in heaven. But on the contrary, the Lord says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, and who knows, maybe those guys that were casting out demons, they were new believers. You know, the little ones might be new believers or maybe children. If you cause them to stumble, the Bible says, then you know you're in, in, in big trouble. If you're the reason they fall away from me, then there is a severe sentence heading your way. Literally, he says, you know, it's better to tie a, a, a millstone around your neck and cast yourself into the deepest ocean. And then the Lord, he gets heavy with us, you know? Because like I said earlier, and I want to reemphasize that point, some people are quick to criticize other Christians. And the Lord here says, man, you better be very careful. And there's so much going on here, and I think he's talking to his disciples, and I think in one sense, he's even warning them. He talks about this thing called hell. And a lot of people don't like to talk about hell, but you know what? I mean, who's talking about it right now? Jesus is. And so if Jesus talks about it, I'll talk about it. Uh, Twelve times the word is mentioned, Gehenna in the Bible, eleven times is Jesus who's talking about it. Why is he talking about it? Because he doesn't want you to go there. He doesn't want you to go there, right? I mean, we need to take this to heart, you guys. You know, he gives a few examples right here regarding things that will cause us to sin and then others to stumble. If your hand uh, causes you to sin, cut it off. And so we got some knives in the back. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> now, you guys know that that's not literal, right? He's speaking metaphorically. What is he saying here? He's saying if your hand causes you to sin... You know, whatever it is that causes you to sin, the things that you do, the places that you go, the things that you look at, what is he saying? He's saying, he's saying, deal with it as if, you know, there was a cancer that needed to be removed. Deal with it severely. Don't play games with sin. You know, if you're struggling with internet pornography, 
Get rid of the internet. It's better for you to go to heaven without the internet than go to hell with the internet. That's kind of what he's saying. You know, if your phone, and a lot of people, they have problems with their phone. They're looking at, you know, pornography. They're sexting. You know, they've got wrong contacts, whatever it might be. If your phone is the cause of you sinning, get rid of it. It's better for you to go to heaven without a cell phone than go to hell with one. But Lord, I have a contract. It doesn't matter, you guys. <laughs> Don't worry. You know, because... Man, for us, it's so important, whatever the cause is. Maybe you have a boyfriend that's not really a Christian. You're a Christian. You know what? Get rid of them. Don't do no missionary dating. Well, eventually they'll get saved. Man, you're going to get messed up. Whatever it is, you got friends that are bad influences. What I had to do when I got saved, I tried to share the gospel with them, and they wouldn't listen to me. Eventually, they didn't want anything to do with me. I was trying to love on them, but it didn't work. But sometimes you have to make decisions in relationships like that. You know, whatever it is, man, you guys, we have to deal severely with it. Because if not, Jesus said, if you're not careful, what ends up happening is people love the sin more than they love their Savior. And a lot of times what happens happening, it could be, for example, like I'm talking about a relationship, right? And let's just say, for example, you're a girl, and this guy's your boyfriend, but he's not a Christian. And so Jesus says, you belong to me, make a choice. You know, either you stick with your boyfriend, and you know what, you're going to end up in hell, or you make a decision that you love me. And you follow me. Because what ends up happening, the Bible says, is that they love darkness more than light. And that's what happens, you guys. You know, I, I know hell is a tough place to talk about, but we have to. We have to know the reality of it. He talks about the worm uh, that never dies. And that's the uh, torment from within, that worm. And then the fire that's never quenched. And that's the torment from without God does not want you to go there. A lot of times people struggle with hell. It's only because they don't realize the holiness of God. If you did, you would understand. You know, C.S. Lewis once went to hear a young pastor deliver a sermon, and he did so earnestly, but he ended his message by saying this, and now, my friends, if you do not believe these truths, there may be grave eschatological consequences. And so C.S. Lewis, later he talked to the young guy and he said, did you mean that they might go to hell? <laughs> and he said, yes. And C.S. Lewis said, then why didn't you just say it? You know, J Jesus talks about it. Here's the thing. He doesn't want you to go there. If you go to hell, it's your choice. You have to step over his dead body to do so. He loves you. And he wants you in heaven forever. He died for you. And he's warning you. See, for us, we have to understand the holiness of God. You know, the last thing here, and I know we're over. We're way over. Oh, my gosh. All right, verse 48. Christian greatness, Christian oneness, uh, Christian holiness. And then the last one is Christian saltiness. In verse 49, for everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and then he says, and have peace with one another. 
I like the way he ends it. Uh, Commentators say he brings it all the way back around. Because here's the problem. They're arguing amongst themselves as leaders. There's no peace. And they're even arguing with others. You know, hey, you guys shouldn't be doing that. The Lord says, you need to be salty saints. Now, this section right here, I must admit, is a little difficult to understand. One commentator said there's 15 different interpretations, and so I'm going to give them all to you really quick. No, I'm just joking. I won't. Uh, The one that kind of made the most sense for me, look at verse 49 again. For everyone will be seasoned with fire. And, And, you know, everyone, it means everyone. That's what everyone means. And everybody goes through hard times. In one sense, it's almost like everybody tastes a little bit of hell, even on earth. You know, we go through difficult times, but it's intended to make us look up. I remember one sister who loved the Lord dearly, and one day I asked her, I said, hey, how did you become a Christian? And you know what she told me? My daughter was murdered at a party. You know, her daughter died, but prior to her daughter being killed, her daughter would share with her mom, mom, you got to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Mom, I came to the Lord. Mom, I love the Lord. Mom, you got to follow the Lord. And so when her daughter was killed, it's kind of like she's going through the fire, right? And what God did in that is used it to bring her to heaven because she knew where her daughter was. Her daughter was in glory. And so now she would want to follow. You know, we go through hard times and it makes you think, yeah, one day I will die. You know, I think of Pastor Henry and his mom when when she had cancer. You know, it's a terrible thing to discover, but that's what brought him to the Lord. You know, we go through the difficulties. I think of Carlos and his family and the struggles that they... I think of myself when I was there empty. I had what I thought was a great life, but it was empty. And so the fire, everyone seasoned with fire. That's right there, the, the hard times that we go through. Those are intended to make you look up. Don't run away from God, run to God. But then he says, but every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. You know what the sacrifice is? It's us. Watch, lick your hand real quick and you'll notice that. No, I'm just joking. That's us. We're supposed to be salty Christians, you guys. We are. And, and the Lord talks about that, you know. I mean, to, to be salt, we know salt was uh, uh, three things. Number one, it was a preservative. And so they would put salt on the meat so it would last longer. You know, when we are really Christians, not Pharisees, not religious, but really Christians, In one sense, we're going to make a difference. We're going to be the ones who will, even in our nation, man, we're going to be salt to preserve our nation, right? So that's one thing that salt does. Another thing that salt does is it adds flavor, amen? Have you ever had beans without salt? Ah, You need some salt. It's serious. My wife's salt, but you have high blood pressure. Who cares? Throw the salt in, right? (laughs) And for us as Christians, when we're salty, man, it tastes good. And, you know, I I just, man, when people are around you, they're going to just say, man, there's something about you that is beautiful. I love it. Which leads to the third thing, and that is that salt creates a thirst. That's why they put salt on popcorn, because it makes you want to buy Cokes, right? And so salt creates a thirst. And when we're salty Christians, uh, preserving Christian values, tasting good, 
and creating a thirst in others. You know, I, I think of some of you young guys and how, you know, your friends, when they look at you, they're like, man, I want what you have. What do you have? And then you guys end up saying, I have Jesus. That's what salt does. And that's what we're supposed to do. And Jesus talked about that. He said in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing, but be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. But, O oh Lord, I don't want to be good for nothing. You died on a cross. You suffered and paid the penalty for all of our sins. For all the sins of all the people, I want to help them, Lord. And so the Lord says, okay, Manny, and you got to remember what true Christian greatness is and Christian oneness is, and you got Christian holiness and Christian saltiness. And as you do, God says, 